Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. I just finished talking with Jamie Cohen Cole about his great new book, The Open Mind, Cold War Politics and the Sciences of Human Nature. This is a book that came out in 2014 with the University of Chicago Press. The book takes as its object something that Cohen Cole calls the open mind, and it looks at the way the open mind emerges in the context of Cold War America and gets used and deployed as a model in a few different ways. This is as a model of citizenship and its political role, as a model of thinking, um, researching being in its role in the university community and academia, and as a model of human nature um, in, a, in a number of different kinds of texts and images and contexts. One of the really wonderful things about the book is the ways that it contextualizes some of the virtues and objects that we kind of take for granted as characterizing uh, thinking life, university life right now. And these are some ways of thinking about what an education looks like, what interdisciplinarity is, where it's found, how it's identified, and what it means, what the relationship between an individual and the larger communities and publics of which it is part might look like, could look like, should look like, among many other things. And so it's a book that's at the same time very carefully contextualized within a very particular uh, historical context, but it also potentially speaks to a much wider set of questions and frames. It's extraordinarily clearly written, um, so it's uh, it's really a pleasure to read, and it was also a great pleasure to talk with Jamie about it. And so I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, to read through the book, and enjoy it. Um, and I hope you also enjoy the conversation to come. We're here today with to talk with Jamie Cohen Cole about his new book, The Open Mind: Cold War Politics and the Sciences of Human Nature. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Jamie, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I really loved. So welcome and congratulations on a fabulous book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Jamie, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the history of science and to the history of the human sciences in particular? Um, let's see. Uh well, what brought me to history of science is, I guess, maybe like many of us, I grew up being just so excited by reading about um, scientific activities in books or seeing seeing Nova. And from a very early age, at least as long as I could remember, I knew that I wanted to be like those physicists on <laughs> On Nova, and so I knew, and then I knew that I needed to that the place to do that, of course, was was MIT. Of course, I didn't know that MIT was the center of Nova because WGBH just happened to be there. Uh, so I thought for a long time that I was going to that I that you know MIT was where I was going to go, and then somewhat. Before college, I, I realized that there was things outside of science, and I had a really I had a really good history teacher, and I thought that was so exciting. And then, so <clears throat> I arrived in college. I decided that I would save um, I would save science for graduate school, and that I would have keep an open mind about what I was gonna, you know, just what was gonna be exciting to me in college. And it happened that I was reading student reviews of courses and. Uh, my first term of college and the first term <clears throat> just before classes started, I realized there was this thing called history of science and there was a class on the scientific revolution and boy, that was great. I rolled it in. It was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I was, you know, I was pretty much hooked from that point. That's great. So you knew from the undergraduate um, period of your life that you wanted to work on history of science. I, from, from first term to first year. Wow. Yes. Wow. 
So the book itself that we're talking about today looks at the emergence of a historical object and actually one that you've already invoked um, in your short biography. That's the object called the open mind in the context of Cold War America. So along the path of the book and um, in each of the chapters, it does a whole lot more than that. And we'll talk about aspects of the larger narrative in the course of our conversation. Um, but to start us off, how did you come to work on this particular topic as the focus of your research? What brought you you to the open mind as an object of your study for your dissertation? Um, well, I, I started with thinking, with being interested in working on the history of cognitive science mm -hmm. and working on the question of how did the field, how did the field come together and trying to understand if there, if there was a way to understand the development of this, this intellectual discipline or interdisciplinary field and looking at the kind of um, instruments and practices and activities that people who are involved in that in that work um, under underwent as they uh, developed the field and so what I found fairly quickly in my research was that the intellectual activities and the social activities and the instrumental activities of these people who were working in cognitive science couldn't explain either their engagements with each other or with their understanding of what it was they were doing, or even more importantly, at least for my initial question, was how it was that the cognitive version of human nature came to be accepted as veridical. Um, so the question I started with is, is how did we get to the point that the cognitive, the cognitive sciences came to be believed rather than a, an earlier version of um, human nature that was uh, represented by a behaviorist? And so this is a long way of saying that to get to the, um, I started with cognitive science and it turned out that I needed to understand something that, of which cognitive science was a part and it turned out that open-mindedness was really the issue. It was really the thing that I was, that cognitive scientists and their close intellectual and social companions were working on. Awesome. Thank you. So this, as I've just um, kind of implicitly or sort of explicitly invoked, this did start off in its first instantiation as a dissertation project. Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about the transition from dissertation to book, were there any major transformations in how you were thinking about the project, how you were conceptualizing what you wanted to argue in the shape of the project or, or anything related to that? Basically, were there any major changes from dissertation to book? Yeah. Um, well, there was, uh, there was two kind of research pieces and then there was a structural piece. Um, so in the, in the dissertation, I, I basically did, I made two claims. One was is that I was looking at the development of cognitive science and how it came to triumph over behaviorism. And then I made a separate study, at least in retrospect, it, it, was, it was somewhat separate, um, about the political sort of social understandings of open-mindedness. And I claimed that these two were related. And I, I don't, I didn't think after you know, a year or two after I finished dissertation that I had really done a good job in making the two talk to each other very well, except to making, except for noticing that the, that there were people who were involved in both cognitive science and the political project. So the work that I needed to do was to think of a way to, and find out if it was the case that I could show that these two things were connected in more than a kind of a biographical way and in more than a kind of zeitgeist way. And so the work there then involved the question of how to, how to understand what it meant to be a kind of good thinking or rather open-minded um, intellectual or scientist or academic social thinker. And so the claim that I ended up making was that the, um, there were three things that were connected. Ultimately, there were three things that were connected to each other. One was human nature and the open-minded the open-minded human. Another was an open-minded citizen. And the third was an open-minded academic. And that these three things were tightly related. And the reason they were tightly related was because they were 
studied by and performed by the same set of people and that um, each of those experiments on these things and social conversation about those things were happening all at once. So I had to then, the work I had to do was then to think about how those three things were related and then to restructure the book rather than dissertation in such a way that I talked about those things separately and then to show the relations with the, among each other. And then to fill in the space where I actually described the academic mind, the intellectual mind. Great. Well, I think just as one reader, the structure works extraordinarily well. And also, if I haven't already mentioned it, it's one of the most clearly written and clearly argued history of science books that I've ever read. So congratulations on whatever you did to turn it from a dissertation to book. It really worked. And it was really a pleasure um, and very clear to read as well. Oh, thank you. So in the introduction, you lay out some of the um, premises behind the shape of the book, as you've just talked about, and also some of the conceptual and historiographical foundations that undergird this study. So I think it's um, a, a good way to start is just to start by getting into some of them, and then that'll open us up into the parts of the book. So in the Cold War, as you put it in the introduction, psychology came into its own as a tool for social analysis. And so one way that this book is situated within a larger historiography of science is in so far as it speaks to Cold War science as a general trope. So how does your approach to the Cold War in the history of science and the history of science differ from other major approaches to Cold War studies in this period? And what kind of contribution are you hoping to make to Cold War science and its histories um, through the book? Oh, um, that's a great question. It's one I, I struggled with hard to think about. You know, my my place in the in the in the literature and and also sort of what it is that I was doing that was you know, perhaps some somewhat different from what others have done. Uh, okay, so. It, we have a lot. We have some really wonderful studies of of um, militaristic um, Cold War um, science, and um, so you know, particularly in the area of the physical sciences. Um, and we also have a lot of work that is uh, concerned with the question of what is the extent that um, science during the Cold War period is deformed by or influenced by kind of these. Um, you know, struggle, struggle with, struggle with the Soviet Union, and some of the answers that we come, to, you know, so we have answers for the physical sciences, uh, cir- you know, circulating, you know, first, you know, the, sort of the work that had been done in, you know, the Paul Foreman line or answers to Paul Foreman line, you know, about arguments that, you know, that these sciences were diverted from their true course or were taking advantage rather of the um, of the of military funding, uh, so. What um, for me though, thinking about um, the Cold War, and particularly in the social sciences, the, the, the question is whether or not the, so, the um, uh, we should the social sciences should be understood as having um, in their relationship in their relationship to, to Cold War funding become something like um, Machiavellian or almost a kind of strange you know Doctor Strange love. Um, system for developing either American dominance around the world or, um, or a kind of, uh, simply a kind of a mechanistic form of analysis of, um, of society and, and of individuals and their relations to one another. And so what I want to, so what I wanted to say was, is that one of the major themes politically and culturally of this period, and one of the ways that the United States wanted to sort of at least its, its proponents wanted to distinguish the United States from from the Soviet Union, and people in the center and the left wanted to distinguish what was positive about the United States from from McCarthyism was to claim that we had a kind of open minded spirit. And so, my my claim here is is that there was a fair amount of funding and a fair amount of energy supporting sciences that would that would um, celebrate not regimentation, not militarism, but a kind of um, free and creative um, subject and free and creative science. Mm -hmm. 
That's great. Thank you so much. Now, in doing so, as you've already um, introduced in your opening comments, the book is actually going to focus on the open mind, and it's going to focus on the open mind by considering three dominant roles of this object. And just to um, recap what you've already taken us through, it looks at the open mind in terms of its political role as an exemplary model of citizenship, working with others for a free and democratic society, as you put it. In terms of its academic role, especially in the life of the university community, and here it displays characteristics as a model researcher, scientist, or thinker. And then finally, you look at the open mind in terms of its its role as a universal model of human nature. And the book um, kind of recapitulates these different ways of thinking about and structuring and locating the human mind over the course of its chapters. So the first part of the book focuses on what you call the American mind. In the first chapter, it looks closely at an aspect of this that is instantiated in the general education movement from the 1930s to the 1950s. Now, in this context, as you show us in this chapter, curriculum designers were attempting to protect democracy and also to shape the future of modern America by training flexible and open-minded students. And this raises questions of pedagogy. So to bring us into this chapter, um, can you talk a little bit about the debate here over pedagogy in terms of a liberal education versus general education approach? What was the difference between these approaches and what's important about this difference in terms of situating the larger argument that you're making in this part of the book? Okay, thank you. Um, well, liberal, okay, so in the no, if we're, if we're picking up in the 30s, um, liberal and general education were each answers to a problem that um, people who were concerned about American society um, saw as sol- solutions to to modernity and to the, the shape of the, um, the research university and other colleges. Specifically, they were beginning to see that there was an enormous amount of, sort of uh, fragmentation in the curriculum, which they saw as mirrored in fragmentation of, of society, which was mirrored by um, a proliferation of um, disciplines and modes of expertise, which was character, which they saw as characteristics of, uh, of modernity. So the question was, is there's going to be any, any way to have a kind of unified American culture? And is there, would there be a way of um, developing students who would ultimately be citizens in this culture such that they could negotiate this culture well? And so liberal and ed- liberal education on the one hand and general education on the other developed two different, uh, you know, different answers to that, to that problem they both saw. The liberal education's answer to this was essentially something like a great books uh, solution. So to, um, to draw on the, um, on the wellsprings of, uh, of uh, Western culture and to, um, to find a kind of long, t- to draw on long-term solutions to the things that we had, uh, that Western culture had valued and to try to try to make sure that at least everybody within a college, but hopefully quite possibly more people around the country were reading and thinking about the same books and problems. Uh, so there would be that was one one approach to unity, right? By drawing on history and values. Now, on the general education side, um, a good number of these people thought that the pro- that there was a problem with the, with a liberal education version, which had developed somewhat earlier, and the general education people. Uh, contended that the liberal education approach was suited to an elite, um, and that um, not everybody in the in the country could um, engage with Plato or Shakespeare in really deep ways. Instead, the goal would be to d- develop a kind of cultural unity, finding through other methods. And one way to do that would be to bring unity to a student's individual curriculum maybe by giving them individual studies um, that would be kind of like an interdisciplinary, everybody could form their own interdisciplinary unit um, or curriculum. Another possibility would be simply that general education would be organized around the application of academic studies to modern life. So these are the, these are the two brand, these are the two branches and um, ways of thinking about getting unity in the curriculum and hopeful unity in culture. Great, thank you, Jamie. And you take us um, later on this chapter 
into an attempt at Harvard in the 1940s to deal with this by putting not books or content, but a particular kind of mentality or way of thinking at the center of general education. So in this context, um, you talk about the importance of expertise as a notion or a mode of thinking about what a general education, um, at least in this context at Harvard, um, might be giving to students. And that is a program giving them the tools, as you put it here, for evaluating expertise in fields outside of their own, if not a common body of content. And this is, I, I raise this um, not asking me to t talk too much about it at this point because we'll get to all the other fabulous chapters, but I just want to mark this because this was, uh, for listeners, one of many points in the book where the chapters, even though they're very specifically and very carefully situated within very particular historical contexts, really do give us the tools for thinking about much broader social, cultural, and political phenomena in our lives right now. Um, and so I think this is one of many places in these chapters that what you're giving us here really helps us c contextualize and situate the current um, or some current debates in education right now. And so it's, it's really useful, not only as a history um, is what I'm trying to say, but also as a way of thinking through the context of some um, contemporary debates. So as we move from this context of looking at the general education movement, we move to a chapter that looks at how ideals of open-mindedness and of creativity structured Cold War political and social thought by efforts to reform the nation by reforming the self. And here we have a discussion of different kinds of personalities and also efforts to measure those personalities. And this is a really, really interesting um, chapter for all of these reasons. So let's come into this chapter by looking at an aspect of this. Specifically, can you talk a little bit about these two kinds of personalities that emerge in this chapter, that is um, creative, or two aspects, two traits of personalities, creativity and autonomy. How are these traits measured by the people you're looking at in these chapters, and how are creative people identified, and, and what's important about these processes for us to understand in order to understand the larger arguments you're making in this chapter? Right. Um, okay, so there were a number of tools that were um, used to, because I'm going to answer the measurement question. I'm asking you to repeat the, uh, the other part. Uh, so there were a number of tools for getting at what, um, how to identify somebody as creative or autonomous. Um, one was um, that um, psychologists actually didn't, one of the ways they handled this was that they didn't actually have an answer uh, to start with. And so they started with identifying people who were creative that is who had been not that the psychologists had chosen as creative, but rather who had been chosen by the laity as creative. And then, um, and comparing that, that group of creative people against a, a similar group that were less creative. So consider um, architects, right? You have your creative architects that the architectural profession identifies as creative, and you have your average architects that the architectural profession identifies as being pretty much run of the mill. So the question is, is can we develop a, um, a psychological tool that will um, distinguish one from the other? And so they, um, there was a group of psychologists at Berkeley that did it, this thing with architects, mathematicians, uh, aircraft engineers, um, women mathematicians, just you know, pretty much any um, uh, professional group they could find. And the way they handled it was both by um, observing these uh, groups um, just in operation and as they just happened to hang out together. Um, and the other technique was something they used that they used called QSORT, which was to, um, to give these individuals adjectives. At the characterological adjectives, and these people were supposed to apply those adjectives, um, uh, sort the adjectives such that, um, in a stack like a stack of cards, such that the ones that were most applied to their own personality were on top, and the ones that least applied to their personality were on the bottom. So it was a kind of a self-rating thing. Um, and then also the psychologists in observing these people would de would develop their own Q sort to. Um, to, you know, to give a kind of objective measure of those as well. So one way to do one one outcome of this was that it turned out that creative people were open minded, they were flexible, they were tolerant. Right? So there's a set of these kinds of um, words that were um, it turned out to be rather interchangeable. Um, 
and people who are less creative also um, just didn't have those words that didn't, didn't apply as often. That was one way of doing it. Another way of doing it was to find was that creative people, um, autonomous people, um, could be found as being the inverse or the most, the least likely to to answer um, to to show up on the things that were the opposite of creativity and autonomous. So the the, the um, people who were not creative, people who were not autonomous, were those who were closed minded or those who were um, authoritarian. And those people could be found either through cue sorting or through um, opinion tests on, on their political views, or um, there were some social psychological tests to find whether or not people were conformist. And the way you would do that is basically put people in a room and see if they would copy other people in the room in making wrong answers. Right. So, um, right. So if you're surrounded by four people who are giving the wrong answer, are you going to also give the wrong answer to a question about the relative sizes of squares? Right. So that is, is this square the one on the left or the one on the right bigger? And then the four people around you in the room are giving the wrong answer and an objectively wrong answer. And so you can be proven to be conformist if you give the wrong answer to. Um, so it turns out that conformists that created people as it's sort of operationally defined, were the people who were least likely to give these kind of conformist or authoritarian answers. Great. And one of the really interesting things that comes out of just um, what you were just describing, and also one of the points you emphasize in this chapter, is that contrary to what we might assume from kind of the layman's term creativity or the way we typically think of creativity now as a very individualistic thing, you're showing here in this chapter that creativity was a very social affair. And the reason why, among other things, or at least one reason why measuring and identifying creativity and authoritarian personalities was so important is that there were larger social and political ramifications for understanding these personalities. So what are some of the larger political um, ramifications of this? And in what ways were these measurements used for political ends in this part of the book? Well, okay, so uh, the most direct answer for how creativity is used for political ends is that um, we need the first people who are funding research on creativity and the sort of that gets creativity research started at the beginning of the the late 1940s, the beginning 1950s is the Atomic Energy Commission. And so they're looking for creative scientists to make more nuclear energy or weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, so here, they, you know, they, they start with creative physicists and uncreative physicists and they want to, they want measures of for creativity, right? So that's one, right? Um, the other is, is that we need people who are tolerant. So that's, that's kind of weapons. The other is, is that creative people are need to get along with are defined in ways that, um, they're the kind of people who get along with other people who are good at brainstorming in groups who are tolerant to difference. Um, so again, think of an interdisciplinary group coming together in which not everyone in the room is the same, the kind of the most productive thinking is going to have is understood to happen in these situations. And this is a model for thinking of, this is going to be a model in the imagination of the social thinkers of how, um, people of different uh, races or um, religions or ethnic groups might be able to get along together in the United States. Great. Thank you, Jamie. Now, you just mentioned um, uh, us imagining an interdisciplinary group coming together, and that I think really nicely brings us to the next part of the book. So in the next part of the book, we move from what we had been discussing, which is the American mind, and we move to the academic mind. And the second part of the book focuses on the academic mind and specifically the role of open-mindedness in the academy. So we have a new kind of set of locations here. Now, chapter three focuses on professional and social norms of the social sciences in the post-war era. And one of the things this chapter does is it's showing us connections between interdisciplinarity, open-mindedness, and democracy, and uses this to show how and to explain how and why a virtue that we tend to throw around um, again in contemporary modern discourse right now without necessarily thinking about its historical context, right? Interdisciplinarity. This chapter is showing us how and why interdisciplinarity became such a valued mode of scientific research. So it's really fascinating, again, for historically contextualizing something that's of wide relevance um, right now in a lot of different fields. 
So in this chapter, uh, maybe a way in is to talk about um, who is arguing for interdisciplinarity. And so what you have in this chapter is you're showing us a move to and the emergence of thinking about interdisciplinarity as something that would be a virtue um, and, and trying to figure out ways to identify it. So who here is arguing that we need um, an interdisciplinarity in the academy and on what basis are they arguing it? Um, just kind of in broad terms. Um, who? Because uh, so it turns out that the, the all of the patrons mm-hmm. Uh, the funders of of uh, social science are interested in interdisciplinary social science. So, the, the Ford Foundation, which is just just on the scene, the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller, the Rockefeller Foundation, they're all looking for uh, the National Science Foundation. Although funding physical sciences and biological sciences generally are only funding social sciences if it's interdisciplinary. Um, so, all the patrons are doing it. Now, the reasons why they're doing it. Um, is uh, because they th- they they think that interdisciplinary work is inherently is inherently creative, both creative in the sense that it's um, more rigorous and um, uh, deeper thinking. Um, so it's um, it's work that doesn't um, isn't narrow minded and um, small bore. Um, so I think it's that, and they also think that it's more practical, right? So this is, it's what I find really fascinating about this is that for the people who are paying for this stuff, that um, interdisciplinary work, it can be both pure, better in a pure sense and better in the applied sense at once. Um, and so that's the patrons. And um, the thing is, is that there's continuity between the patrons and the, um, and the social scientists. Um, so there was a kind of elective affinity between the patrons and groups and, you know, a number of social scientists who themselves were interested in unification projects, and then very and uh, these are pro- um, social scientists who are interested in very different ways, right? So, Taco Parsons is interested in a theoretical unification of the social sciences, um, and he has been since nineteen since his, you know early an early magnum opus in nineteen thirty seven, and so he's excited when the Carnegie Corporation proposes to him that he um, receive money from them and then write a write a a book, a collected, um, an edited book that will pull together all of the fields which are represented in the social sciences and which are housed in his new department, the Department of Social Relations. So that's one example in the theoretical end. But there's also other people like Margaret Mead, um, who's doing um, anthrop- um, studies of the Soviet mind and working on using uh, anthropology to study mental health and so on. So there's just, um, it's not that the patrons are, force, are forcing interdisciplinarity on the, on the academics. It's rather a kind of collaboration and it's, but it's only some academics. It's, it's um, ones who are interested in things like culture and personality who are interested in unification projects. Um, and so some academics lose in this, in this, um, in this mix. So this is actually the last point that you made is really important here because you're showing in this chapter that notions of interdisciplinarity, this wasn't just something that was debated at a kind of high concept level. I mean, this is really materially shaping and deciding hiring decisions. It's shaping research funding. So there are very um, practical consequences of this. So if you are an academic applying for research funding or going on the market in this period, um, how would you perform interdisciplinarity? Or another way of asking that is, what are the traits of an interdisciplinary individual for the people who are making these decisions? Oh, okay. Well, people didn't... Okay, so the traits... and I try to identify the traits. Um, it's not so much that individuals would self-unashamedly um, label themselves as having the having virtuous traits. Mm-hmm. Though, I mean, though I'm going to claim that they do... that they did so that they that they assume the traits by claiming they're interdisciplinary so they said i'm interdisciplinary and by and by saying they were interdisciplinary they were flagging for their listeners that they were uh rigorous and creative and deep thinkers and um not working only in the ivory tower but um working on problems that could solve that could um make a make society better Mm um so um now the characterization that you know I give a characterization of interdisciplinary people as being um, you know creative and open-minded and innovative um, 
And those words come out of the way that the patrons, the people who are funding these, um, you know, funding these, these projects talked about, you know, internally, that is the way that the Ford Foundation talked internally about the grants that it received. Great. Thank you, Jamie. Now, as you just mentioned Margaret Mead um, in an, uh, just like a couple of minutes ago, and that also really nicely brings us into the next chapter, which is a super, super fun chapter. And this is chapter four, the Academy as Model of America. Now, we see a lot of Margaret Mead here, and we see her not just in the text, but also in some really wonderful images. And so I'm going to ask you to talk about those in a moment. Um, but just to set the stage, chapter four looks at academic salons as a way to explore the social and intellectual norms of mid-century intellectuals, right? That's, I think, how you describe it. Now, in both casual exchanges and informal work, as you're showing in this chapter, social theorists are making an equation, and the equation is between their own social world, so that of the academy, and American society more broadly. So we have this important equation between the academy and American society here, and it's important to mark that because later on in the book we're going to see a transformation of that. So can you talk then, um, as a way to bring this in, about that equation and importantly the way that modeling um, is crucial to making this equation. So what are the most or some of the most important ways that academic groups were seen as models for an American society in this period? Um, well, there was, um, I think the thing that's most important here is, is that the um, social scientists are looking for a way to link up studies of the individual to studies of cultures and larger societies. And they've been looking at, they've been looking to find a way of linking these things up, at least to the origins of the culture and personality movement. And one of the, one of the solutions they find for this is um, small group studies in this period. The idea here is, is that um, in, in a small group, um, individual personalities will be um, available, but also that, there's a, it's going to be the kind of the basic form of social interaction, um, and it will be the same essentially everywhere. Um, and so the question is, is that, how, you know, that is that within small groups, individuals perform particular kinds of social functions which are independent of their their particular social background or personalities, um, and that so social scientists invest a lot of work in understanding this. And the idea here is, is that a small group, Congress, a small group a small academic conference, a small group, a garden club, all of these things are interchangeable and that America or the world is defined by an assemblage of small groups. So we don't need to speak either about individuals or about cultures broadly, or, um, but about these small groups. As a consequence, what we can do is study small groups that we can observe most directly, and these will stand, they'll be a kind of model organism for the social world. Um, so what do we know a lot about? Well, we're, we know a lot about the conferences we attend. Right. Right. So, um, so I, you know, you asked about, you mentioned Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead conducted an ethnography over 40 or 50 years uh, as a participant observer of academic conferences. Um, trying to think about how it is that people relate to each other. Um, and she wanted that to stand in for um, other kinds of small group interactions. And the chapter itself actually reproduces a couple of images um, from that really that show images of people sitting around a table in a small conference and you know, label these individuals sitting around the table, A, B, C, D, or E. And you show us in the captions, the description of, you know, look at the way A is holding his pipe and not looking at B. Look at the way B is holding his hand. And look, and you notice how A and B aren't looking at each other, but C and D are. So you can see these sort of implicit uh, uh, disagreements or modes of communication. It's fascinating. It's fabulous. And it completely now, after seeing that, changes how I um, think of myself um, <laughs> sitting around in a faculty meeting. It's really, really fabulous. And I urge listeners to absolutely, um, if you have time to read, well, I hope you have time to read every single one of the chapters, but absolutely look at the fourth chapter because it's very much, uh, it's very funny for anyone who's ever been in a small group academic meeting. Um, and I'm sure lots of us have. 
how did you come upon those pictures? How did you find those? Um, it's actually for uh, um, a bit a bit of luck. Um, I was working on getting um, an article published, and um, uh, Bernie Lightman asked me if I had images. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, there's not a lot of images of social scientists doing work, and I'm looking for social scientists in practice. And so I went looking for, you know, Margaret Mead doing something. And there's a, you know, or, or any other social scientist, and it turned out, you know, so I'm I'm trying to make a I'm trying to make a claim that social scientists are seeing themselves as being kind of emblematic of a larger social world, and the, one of the ways, one of the things I found, or one of the, the first thing I found was um, a reproduction of um, of Darwin's a re- reprinting of Darwin's on the expression of emotions in the mid in the mid fifties, and the conclusion there's a con- the conclusion to this book is an appendix that the um, social scientists put in there of themselves representing human emotions. And so that made its way into an article. Um, and then um, I went looking further. So I, you know, having found Margaret Mead, having done this, I'm looking further to see the kind of stuff that she had done because apparently, you know, she had the, the this thing on, on the expression of emotions indicated that she had done a study of conferences. And so that then led me to her ethnography of conferences, which includes these, these images of basically time-lapse photography of, um, which was actually standard for theirs. You know, they did this for, they did this in, in um, small villages in Africa and they did it in, in laboratories. And so um, there's a whole bunch of this stuff. It's so fabulous. Um, so one of the other really fascinating things about this chapter is that you're talking about also along the lines of the importance of small groups and the in- social interactions of small groups. You talk about the importance of dinner parties, social clubs, and other kind of in- casual forms of social life to promoting mm-hmm. creativity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, the, you talk about them talking about doing this, right? Well, yeah, I mean, just, um, I found them talking. I mean, they, they just talked about it a lot. Um, and it was clear that, how do I put it, that a good deal of, a good deal of thinking about social life, about politics, about human nature occurred in informal settings, informal settings that were um, among friends, and so it happened to be our, our colleagues who were living in the same place, and that the kind of interaction that happened in the weekly cocktail parties that um, George Bundy held in Cambridge um, were continuous with um, the efforts to promote uh, intellectual socializing at conferences that um, Margaret Mead worried about. So actually UNESCO, um, in order to make sure that conferences worked well, uh, both at the academic level and also in the political level, commissioned social scientists to study academic conferences so that they could make sure that the um, there was a kind of sufficient social lubrication in these places so that people get along. And so Mead and, Mead and some other social scientists came up with recommendations for how to do that, and it involved essentially having cocktail parties at the end of the day. And um, so yeah, and yeah, one outcome of this, which I didn't spend any time on in the book, is, is that we now have conferences that have these you know, it's a regular part of our activities. And yet you can't use funding to reimburse alcohol at academic events. And so funders... Oh, that depends on the, that depends on the funder. <laughs> right. Okay. So Canadian funders take note, take note, there's good social science evidence, or at least a history of thinking about whether you can reimburse alcohol at academic events. But I digress. So another thing that you talk about late in this chapter is a kind of critique of behaviorists. 
in this context. And this actually segues really nicely to the next part of the book in the next chapter. As we move from chapter four to chapter five, we move into a treatment of the human mind. And this third part of the book shows how cognitive science, and you've talked um, already a little bit about how an interest in cognitive science really launched um, the project in an important way. So here you show how cognitive science helped disseminate the values, the epistemic values and social values of the open mind. Chapter five looks at scientists as they become models for understanding human nature. And this chapter focuses on a key point in the history of cognitive science, and that's a point where cognitive science is replacing behaviorism as a dominant science of human nature. So briefly, what do we need to know about that replacement, about that context where cognitive science is replacing behaviorism to understand the larger argument you're making in this part of the book? Right, okay. so. Um, there's two levels to this. One is that um, th there's a basic model of, of human nature as represented by, by behaviorism, and it's something like that um, one can um, account for human action by studying um, human experiences, right? And so humans are um, controllable. Um, they can be conditioned, and the conditioning tells us essentially what we need to know. And in addition, that's probably all we should be studying because all we can, if we're being rigorous science scientists, all we can do is observe a stimuli and responses, not internal states, and particularly not internal states that are uncaused by um, external action or a visible external action. So the thing is, is that this kind of account, this behaviorist account, it is not interested in and has problems with um, unca uncaused action, right? Essentially creative action, autonomous action. So this would be the definition. Right? What would creativity and autonomy be other than things which are not um, caused by other things? So it's cognitive science then um, is interested in studying internal states and one of, uh, and my argument about it is, is that cognitive science is especially engaged with trying to show that um, autonomous and creative work is possible by the human. Now, my intervention in this chapter is to argue that it's this that's interesting and not simply, or that's critical, that's important to the development of cognitive science, that it's this concern with autonomy and creativity that's important to cognitive science and not simply, as has been simply or only has been argued in um, other literature that cognitive science is a product of the the use of a new of a new tool a computer and you do actually talk about analogies between um, the human mind and the computer here there's a lot more in this chapter that we could talk about um, but purely in the interest of time because we could spend the rest of the time just on this chapter I'll just mark some of the really interesting things happening here um, to then move us to the next one at issue as you're demonstrating here in part, um, was the object of study, right? So with psychology, as you focus on in this chapter, a study of behavior or a study of mind, and what does it look like to study mind? What is mind as an object and how do you get access to it? And then you looked at um, specifically the ways that scientific thinking come, comes to be a model. Um, for everyday cognitive processes. And again, this model, this use of the scientist as model for um, everyday thinker is um, some of the, it is a major part of what you're exploring here. Now, the next chapter actually follows up with this by looking at a particular local and spatial context of cognitive science. This is a chapter that looks at the first institutional home for cognitive science. And it considers what happened when cognitive scientists applied, as you call it, George Miller's argument that the, science, the scientist is every man to themselves at this new Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard. So can you talk a little bit about this center? What do we need to understand about this center to understand the role that it's playing in this part of your argument? Okay, so... Um... So, but okay. So, my claim about co about cognitive science being interested in using scientists as models of human nature is that they were in, is that they were interested in a certain kind of science. It was not 
um, an empiricist, not strictly an empiricist science. It was um, a hypothesis-driven and creative science, inventive science. Um, and they also saw that or convinced that the way to do creative and inventive science was to be interdisciplinary, um, you know, to think outside the box and so on. So the people who had been doing this work on the creative human then built an institution, the Center for Cognitive Studies, which sought to promote creative work by making itself interdisciplinary. So that was that was the goal. And then what the what the chapter does is show how they are to their own eye, to their at least to their own eyes, and they also to, ask, to, ask, to ask outside observers, six, you know, pretty successful in making an. Um, um, a kind of hothouse of, of interdisciplinary creative work for half of the time that they're um, that the center is in existence, so that a dec- for half a decade, and then for another half decade, what happens is, is that this is that they're very successful in in um, developing their programs, but it turns out that once the programs get off the ground, that researchers start working more in parallel than in interaction with each other, and so the um, they move from a kind of interdisciplinary collaborative exchange to a more working side by side, but not on the same problems. And the directors, George Miller is one and uh, Jerome Bruner is the other, end up being kind of disappointed that the center is no longer interdisciplinary. And they're, they're, they're disappointed just as cognitive science is actually getting off the ground. So it's kind of ironic. Speaking of getting off the ground, um, one of the really interesting things that you're showing in showing this transition in this chapter from interdisciplinarity to multidisciplinarity is the importance of changes in the physical space and the floor patterns and patterns of movement of the people working at the center to this transformation in the intellectual space and intellectual practices. So anyone interested in the ways that spatial patterning um, impacts shapes is related to larger forms of practice will be particularly interested in chapter six. Now, you also talk in this chapter about the importance of tool exchange to the intellectual culture of the center. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to that, the importance of tool exchange here. Right. Um, okay, so the, the problem, um, I use tool in the way that psychologists talk about tool. So it's a, um, it could be a paper tool, and, uh, and it, you know, for them, instruments could be actual physical things or not. And the reason why I was focusing on exchange on tool exchange was that um, the if we think about char- characterizing the intellectual work of the center over the course of the decade, it turns out that the people there called what they were doing interdisciplinary for five years, and then for five years they called it something else, something like multidisciplinary. But the thing is, is that if you look at the professional descriptions of those people, it's exactly the same. At the first five years is the second five years. So my question was, is what's, what's the difference between the first five years and the second five years? And the argument that, I try, that I'm trying to make is that they, um, in the first five years, people who were working with different kinds of investigatory methods or tools were engaging with each other in such a way that they were borrowing from or looking into one another's toolkits. And that that's what characterizes the interdisciplinary activity. It's um, it's the learning how to do things in a new way, or at least attempting to do so as a way of solving one's own problems. And then so we can understand the move to multidisciplinary um, research culture in the second half of the of the sixties, when people are successful in, in getting cognitive science off the ground, and they have tools they're happy with, and they don't exchange it very much. Um, and yet. It's not this place is multidisciplinary, at least in the sense that there are people who are there who are computer scientists and psychologists and linguists, right? So the professional descriptions that people are still there are, don't change, but the way they talk to each other does. And exchange is a way of, I think, of getting to that um, cultural difference. Great. Thank you, Jamie. Now, as we move to the next chapter, we move to, this is the final chapter of your exploration of the human mind. 
And this is a chapter, chapter seven, that looks at the production of open-mindedness on a national scale, specifically by considering elementary and secondary school curricula that were sponsored by the National Science Foundation. Now you focus here on a particular curriculum, MAN, a course of study, that was organized in the mid-1960s by Jerome Bruner with NSF funding. Now this is really fascinating, and you're showing in this chapter the ways that this curriculum is intended to teach science by teaching students to think like scientists. So again, we see another level of this modeling of the scientific um, individual as a larger American individual and vice versa. So can you just talk a little bit about this? What is this man a course of study and in what ways was it um, organized to teach students to think like scientists and why is that important? Um, okay, so the central question, you know, so the man a course of study was organized around, at least as Bruno put it, three questions, which was, um, what is man? How did he get that way? And how did he get, how do we make him more that way, right? So it was just, you know, it was framed in gender, gender terms to begin with. And it also has, at least in its third question, how do we get more that way? This very normative um, concern, right? So it's, it's, you know, about improving human nature, at least the students, right? At least the students would be um, more improved and then they would be thinking about how to change society to make it more, more human. Um, so this is the goal. Now, how do the students, how can the students be scientific? Well, there were a couple, there were a few ways of doing this. One is, is that um, the curriculum would be organized around, uh, would be inquiry-based rather than um, memorization-based. It would be um, student-centered. Um, um, so with less um, top-down, um, the students' work was supposed to be exploratory. So there were examples of where the students had to take field notes and observe their parents or observe one another, and they were then modeling work that um, anthropologists had done um, in, in Africa, um, observing, pri observing primate behavior. Um, and so they were, they were supposed to understand how data, how data, collection, how data collection worked. And so this is, this is one kind of example. Um, and this, is just, this was continuous with the set of science curricula that, that the NSF had funded, um, which all sought to make the um, you know, children into, into little scientists. And the idea was is that um, truth in science is not given to you at the beginning if you're a practicing scientist. It's rather to be discovered. Um, and so all of these curricula emphasized research, you know, laboratories, for instance, in which truth is supposed to, you know, met, one learns method and then one's supposed to find out what the answer might be. Great. Great. Thank you, Jamie. Now, as we um, move to the final part of the book, we actually see this curriculum attacked and it's attacked by conservatives who are taking this as an example of uh, the ways that social science has become un-American in its focus on creativity and autonomy and equality. And so here we have a context in this fourth part of the book, The Divided Mind, that sees a real transformation in the political discussions and political import of this open mind as an object. This is a book, or this is a part of the book that shows how by the 1960s, these virtues that we've been seeing throughout the rest of the book that are associated with the open mind really come to be associated with a very, very different form of politics. Okay? So you're showing here how the left both at, takes up and adopts the open mind, and as you call it, uh, pries it away from centrist political positions and from those figures, the social scientists, policymakers, etc., who had been championing those positions. So can you talk about that, this shift in the political meaning of open-mindedness, and what's most important about this shift for us to understand in order for us to understand the arguments in this part of the book? Oh yeah, thank you uh, for asking that. Um, the so there were a set of the, what I want. What I wanted. To, what I was trying to work out was is that the the characterization that the sci social scientists and social thinkers and policymakers had been generating over the course of the nineteen fifties of um, a virtuous society and a virtuous um, virtuous person were 
at the top level, supposed to be kind of both good and value-free. They were supposed to be, um, you know, um, uniform. Um, it should work. They're supposed to. We were supposed to work everywhere in all contexts. And this is part of why they could claim that the Soviet Union was immoral or inhuman through its problem with, with authoritarian systems. So because they because these descriptions were not attached necessarily to specific politics, although articulated by people who did have their own politics, they were available to people who um, to a younger generation who would have. Um, politics that would be further to the left and that those that those values and modes of analysis which um, had been articulated over the course of the 1950s were um, picked up by uh, members of the student left um, were articulated in the uh, Port Huron statement for instance um, and members of the uh, students students for democratic society as representing what it is that they wanted in in um, America to become and also then they could use those things to say that um, um, the political and intellectual establishment had failed to enact the very um, virtues that they claimed to represent. Right. And there's actually um, specifically claims here that academics were using sexist criteria and racist criteria for evaluating the intelligence and the worth of other people. So it got pretty um, heated, it seems like, in this part of the story. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So um, sexism and racism had to do with the, um, you know, claim, you know, for instance, on the case of sexism, um, um, women noticing that by uh, objective standards that they were um, excluded from um, positions of, um, you know, Valuable, you know, valued academic positions or uh, uh, academic um, receiving academic awards, and so they use some of the tools of of social analysis and psychological analysis to critique members of the academy as being um, sexist or racist. So again, um, even as we come to the end of the book, we have just many, many points here of um, that are just really interesting in terms of their. In- potential use as points of engagement with uh, very modern contemporary ways of thinking about and thinking through the academy and its relationship to societies more broadly. So, Jamie, there is also a conclusion, and I'll just mention for listeners, um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so I'll just um, mark this rather than asking you to talk too much about it. Um, But the conclusion really wraps up the rest of the book and also takes it um, in a couple new directions forward as it considers this object, the open mind, in this larger context and in the way that we think about relations between individuals and larger groups specifically. So the conclusion's really interesting too and we could talk probably for another hour about the some of the things that you bring up here but we i don't want to keep you for another. well i do want to keep you for another hour but i won't keep you for another hour all right um so jamie there's um we've been talking for an hour there's a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to and it's, it's an extraordinarily rich study and even though we've covered um most of the chapters we still have only barely scratched the surface so it's a very very um, it is very full of characters and um, concepts and local context that you're bringing us into. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers of the book? That's a good question. Um, yeah, um, well, since you were just talking about the conclusion, I, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's to bring it full circle. And one of the things I was, I guess, trying to do in the book was to, th- was to think through the ways in which um, work in the sciences relates to work in culture and in politics. And my goal in doing so was not to say that there was any kind of, um, to say that those connections are, are permanent. Rather, what I seen, what I, what I was, what I discovered, and, and I, I articulated this some in the introduction, some of the conclusion, is that the connections among the things that I was talking about—the academic mind and the uh, American mind and the human mind—was a temporary thing. At least a, that it was a temporary constellation that was self that was a kind of self-reinforcing thing. So we should notice that what com- that what comes out of this is that at the at least at the end of the story that. It's not that cognitive science goes away. 
when politics change or when the field develops. It's that it doesn't. It has a. It has a very different kind of relationship to the political to political structures and to ac- and then then to academic structures as well. And so that um, one of the things that I would argue is, is that the way the reason is that an outcome of academic analysis of society of academic analysis of human nature and a political culture coming together during the fifties and and beginning of the sixties is that. At the time, and in retrospect, it seemed to be a time. It seemed to be a place, a period in which um, there was consensus. And I'm trying to account for why that consent, in part, why that consensus there's a um, was seemed to be there. Um, and then also, at the very end, why it seems to be that um, no no one can get along anymore. And I would argue that it's not that people were getting along more at the beginning. It's rather that people who were writing about it social thinkers were working within a cloak, working much more within a system in which they had better access to power, to social power and better act and a tighter connection to accounts of human nature. And by the time we get to the 1970s, um, people who are discussing society and discussing human nature have less of a connection with one another. Um, but there's more space for people, with different political views to be either in the Academy or people who have, you know, we're not white men to be in the academy or people who are either further to the left or further to the right to talk about what the way society should be, should be organized. So that's what's, that's, I think what's, what's new. Great. Thank you so much, Jamie. And congratulations on a book that is both, as I've mentioned it already, extraordinarily clear and really, really thoughtful. So now that the book has come out, um, and again, congratulations on that. What's next for you? Are there any new projects that are currently inspiring you, and uh, what are you working on now? Um, well, I'm trying. That's a good question. I'm at the very beginning of trying trying to find um, a way of thinking about what the scientists have said, and others, scientists and other people have said about how children learn to speak and read. And I think, you know, it's both, again, it's kind of an interdisciplinary project. I mean, lots of people work on this from different fields and also has a lot of implications about how we define ourselves, you know, a definition of human nature because we humans speak, but others, other organisms, species don't seem to speak. Um, although we're moving toward a time where people are beginning to think more that animals have language. Um, so, um that's that's my problem, and I'm looking for what, you know, in series you know series of entry points as a way to talk about that problem. Well, that's another fascinating project, and so once you have written that up, I'll look forward to talking with you about that book as well. Looking so, forward to that as well. So best of luck with that, Jamie. Thank, thank you, you so much for making the time, um, and it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.